So we're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel according to Matthew, and we are in chapter 14. We did finally make it out of Matthew 13 a couple of weeks ago. So we're looking at Matthew 14, uh, page 974 of your pew Bibles, if you're using those, and I would ask you to use some Bible to follow along. If you're able, would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired word? Matthew chapter 14 and verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to, to our hearts this morning. Please be seated. So, hope you remember a couple of weeks ago as we reached the end of chapter 13, Jesus had that visit back to his hometown of Nazareth. We read when he went back there that he did not, Mark even tells us he could not, do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We read that the people had been affected by his preaching, and Mark tells us that he did lay his hands on a few people and healed them, even there in Nazareth, but couldn't do many mighty works. The people were dismissive of him. They did not believe in who he was telling them through his words and works that he was. You see, in their eyes, he couldn't possibly be who and what he claimed to be, the Messiah, because they knew that he was just the son of the carpenter, son of Mary, a brother of those sisters and brothers that are all ordinary people just like us, and so he could not possibly be who he claimed to be. And so the people took offense at him. They stumbled over him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, and in his own household. Well, that text certainly finishes up that chapter, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but it also serves as a, a transition text and a way to lead us into this next narrative portion that Matthew is going to be giving us, which begins here in chapter 14 and verse 1. In fact, Matthew indicates to us that the events in our text today are at least loosely connected in time to the events in chapter 13 by using that sort of general time marker at that time. 
It doesn't mean that as soon as he said those words, these things happened. It just means in connection with that, and roughly about that time, we also find these things happening. Now, the text we're looking at today fills us in on the gruesome end of John the Baptist, the end of his life and his ministry. But I also plan to show us how the scripture shows us how that also connects to Jesus himself. And to do that, we want to examine the text under three headings. We're going to look in verses 1 through 5 at fearfulness. We're going to look in verses 6 through 11 at folly. And we'll look in verse 12 at faithfulness. First of all, fearfulness. We noted in the, what I call the Nazareth passage that we just looked at, that the people there had heard reports about Jesus' powerful, authoritative preaching and his mighty works, the miracles that he's been doing all over. And of course, they also heard his teaching and saw those limited miracles. But the interesting thing in this passage is to note that the people in Nazareth weren't the only ones to hear those reports. Matthew tells us that as they were hearing those reports, someone else was also hearing about the fame of Jesus. And that was the Tetrarch, Herod. Some wonder, by the way, how Matthew comes to have all the details that we find here about um, John and his time with Herod and his untimely end, and even all the events at the party itself. And even how did he receive the reports about Jesus? We find in other parts of Scripture that Herod's steward, who took care of his household and things, his wife was a woman named Susanna, who actually was a supporter of Jesus' ministry. And so it's possible that Herod is literally hearing about these things through his steward, through his wife, who is literally in the company with the disciples as they are going through Jesus' life and ministry. He's called the Tetrarch. That word Tetrarch means a quarter of. It means that he is the, the ruler over one quarter of what? It's one quarter of the kingdom that his father, Herod the Great, had had in that area. When, when Herod the Great passed, the Romans divided that kingdom up into four parts, and he gets one part, which included the regions of Galilee, where Jesus has been ministering as we've been working through these chapters. But it also includes an area called Perea, which is on the other side of the Jordan, sort of starting below, I guess you would say, the Sea of Galilee and extending down toward uh, the Dead Sea and uh, sort of across from Jerusalem and, and, and all. It's a fairly lengthy section of territory for that region. So at this time, Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, hears these reports about Jesus' powerful preaching, about the miraculous works that he is doing, the huge crowds that are gathering to him, but he especially hears, notice this, about his many mighty works. His attention is focused on these miracles. And notice the response that he gives to his servants when they tell him about this. He tells them, this is John the Baptist. Why would he think that? Well, of course, remember, Jesus and John the Baptist ministered side by side for quite some time in the region in Perea, near Perea, where, where he is the ruler. 
Jesus' ministry was essentially like John the Baptist, especially initially. They were baptizing in the same region. They were preaching the same message. Repentance, the kingdom of heaven has come among you. It's also worth remembering, whether you do or not, that it was back in chapter 4, verse 12, that we read that it was when John was cast into prison that Jesus then withdrew from that area and began his own ministry in Galilee when John was cast into prison. But understand that for Herod Antipas, this reaction to look at what he's hearing about Jesus and tell his servants this is John the Baptist is more than just the similarity in their ministry. This is superstition and this is fear, guilt and fear combined. Notice, it's not just John the Baptist. It is John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead. And that's why these miraculous powers are present with him and, and around him. Wait a minute. Raised from the dead? I thought he was just in prison. When did that happen? Well, that's exactly what Matthew tells us when he says, For, for Herod had arrested John. He had him in prison, probably in, in a place way down in southern uh, Perea, in a prison fortress palace that he had there, one that his father had had. He had him imprisoned, and he tells us basically about what happened. And, and the very short version of this story is that Herod is a wicked and ungodly man, like father, like son. He is married to a woman, and he no longer wants to be married to her because he now has become infatuated with the wife of his brother. And so he divorces his wife, and the wife of his brother divorces or puts him away, which was possible according to Roman law, I think, at that time. And the two of them become married, which is in direct violation of God's commandment in the book of Leviticus, you shall not be with your brother's wife. It's a direct command from God. And John the Baptist knows this, and so John the Baptist is telling Herod, you shall not have your brother's wife. You must not. It's wrong that you have her. Now, that doesn't mean that John was going into the palace and having a private meeting with Herod telling him that. What John the Baptist is doing is in front of the crowds that are gathered to him all around the areas where he is, he's telling all of them, telling Herod through all of them, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, that kind of thing about a powerful official can get you into trouble. The truth is that if you notice, we even read here that it is for Herodias' sake that Herod is doing this. The other gospel writers are a bit more expansive on this. It is Herodias who is really most affected by what John is saying to everybody, and she is the one who wants John the Baptist dead, whatever it takes. Actually, some of the other writers indicate that Herod Antipas is kind of taken with John, kind of drawn to him, likes to talk to him, doesn't really want him dead. And in fact, we're even told, I think it's in, in Mark, that, that Herodias wants him dead, but she couldn't get him dead because Antipas protected him and kept him safe. 
because he was such a holy and righteous prophet. So it seems likely that when Matthew says that Herod wanted him dead, that what he's really saying is that he wanted him dead because his wife wanted him dead, but he didn't dare do it, and that's because the people, those huge crowds, believed he was a prophet. So you can see that whatever is going to happen in this text is based and grounded on fearfulness on the part of Herod Antipas. Next we move to folly. Interesting passage that connects to this, Proverbs chapter 9, verses 7 and 8 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man or a wicked person incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he, and in this case you might add she, will hate you. Well, when Matthew tells us that John said to Antipas, It's not lawful for you to do this. The word really means that he kept on saying it. (laughs) He wasn't satisfied to say it one time. He kept on repeating it over and over and over again. And so you find the situation here where this proverb becomes very true for John the Baptist. He is imprisoned by Herod, almost certainly at the urging of his, well, notice Matthew doesn't call her his wife, does he? Matthew still calls her his brother's wife because in the eyes of God, that marriage is illegitimate and he is literally with his brother's wife. And so they have him in prison. Herodias has this grudge against him, wants him dead, but Antipas won't do it until this birthday celebration comes about. Birthday for Herod Antipas. And knowing the reputation of the Herods, It is likely that this birthday celebration was an ungodly scene of drunkenness and debauchery. Although we're not told specifically that it's true, it's likely even that this dance by the daughter of Herodias was also a very debaucherous kind of thing. It's suggested, I think, by the fact that Herod and his guests are extremely pleased with the dance and with her in doing it to the point where he foolishly, publicly, rashly promises to give her anything that she wants, anything. And to make sure she knows he's deadly serious about it, he adds an oath to the promise in front of all of his guests, in front of everyone. Anything that you want, just ask. The problem is that Herod, at this point, not only acts out of fearfulness, he acts out of folly. His mind is not able to comprehend the deadly, scheming, wicked heart of his illegitimate wife. And at her counsel, the girl asked Herod to give her here, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And of course, Herod immediately regrets his foolish and rash promise. The problem is he doesn't regret it enough. Yes, we are not supposed to fail to fulfill oaths and vows that we make, but if we make an oath or a vow that is contrary to God's will and word, we are to repent of our sin in making the vow, not keep the vow instead. And what he should have done was to, despite his oath, refuse to grant a promise that would result in such a wicked and unjust action against such a holy, righteous 
prophet of God. However, in the end, Herod Antipas is far more interested in saving face in front of his guests than he is in saving the life of this holy man. And so he issues the necessary commands and has John the Baptist beheaded in the prison. And immediately the head is given to the girl who then delivers it to her wicked mother. And thus, the greatest Old Testament prophet, remember according to Jesus' own words, is unjustly dishonored, if you will, by his wicked enemies. And all of that because of the vain and arrogant folly of this wicked and godless ruler. So we've looked at fearfulness and folly. Look at faithfulness now. We've seen that even following his arrest, John's disciples have been faithful to him. You remember, they've apparently been able to visit with him, talk with him, even carry out his wishes. Remember, he sends them to Jesus, ask him, are you really the one we're looking for, or should we be looking for somebody else? They have been faithful to him even in this prison time. And now when they learn that their beloved prophet and master has been martyred, they don't run for the hills and hide. They continue to be faithful to him and they go to Antipas and they ask for his body so that they can give him a proper burial. Despite the risk that they could be seized and treated in the same way. Remember, guilt by association is a powerful thing in the mind of a powerful ruler. And yet, they faithfully ask and they faithfully bury him. How faithful are they to John? Well, the faithfulness of at least some of them could be maybe understood a little better if you consider that about 20 years later, when the Apostle Paul is on his missionary journeys and comes to the city of Ephesus about 600 miles away from here, he encounters some men who only know about the baptism of John, but not the baptism of Jesus. You see, John powerfully impacted these people and their faithfulness continued well after his death. But there's also, I think, at least one further way that their faithfulness is able to be seen and demonstrated. Matthew tells us in verse 12 that when all of this was done, when he had been buried, that at least some of his disciples went directly to Jesus to tell him what had happened. And why do they do that? Well, remember, it was their master who pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, he said, I must decrease and he must increase. And so it suggests here in their actions that these men still saw the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus tightly interconnected. And with John gone, they come to the one that John pointed to, the one that John sent them to. It also suggests, I think, that the answer Jesus gave to John's disciples, remember, go back and tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, those who are in prison are set free, they hear the good news. It suggests that that answer of Jesus was sufficient for John and his disciples and that they were satisfied that Jesus was who he said he was. And so they now faithfully turn to Jesus the one their master has faithfully pointed them to. 
So when you look at a passage like this, you've got to think, okay, so this is about John the Baptist getting beheaded in the prison. What does this have to do with us? And in fact, maybe why does Matthew bother giving us this really kind of lengthy description of all of this? Matthew tends to be um, not as descriptive sometimes as other people are. I think there's at least one brief lesson that you can pull out of this, particularly the way this text Matthew places it right after Jesus' rejection in Nazareth, right? I mean, they're, they're directly tied together. And, and remember, Nazareth is where the people of his own hometown, and, and as he says, your own household, couldn't believe that he was who he claimed to be, the Messiah. And they couldn't believe that because they just knew already he was just merely the son of a carpenter and Mary. Not unlike any of his other siblings, nobody's anybody special here. And even though they had received these reports about him, they'd seen the mighty works that were intended to confirm those reports were the truth of God. They just rejected that and rejected him. And here Matthew shows us that a pagan ruler also receives those same reports about those same mighty works and he misidentifies him as well. He doesn't see him as any Messiah. He's just John the Baptist come back to haunt me. What does that have to do with us? It isn't enough for people to hear reports about Jesus. It isn't even enough that they hear reports that he was a great teacher and that he could do mighty miracles. We need to strive to try to convey to people who he truly was. What those teachings and mighty works meant and indicated. We need to try to introduce them to the one who wasn't simply a great teacher and a mighty worker, but the one who was literally the Son of Man and the Son of God, come to dwell among us to be the Savior of sinful people. The word made flesh to die for, to atone for, to save his people from their sin and restore them back to their God and their Father. And so I think that that drives us to be sure that we don't just see ourselves living in this world to be saved by Christ, but we're in this world to be saved by him so that we can be a witness to others so that they can be saved by him as well. Also, given the very strong focus Matthew has in this gospel, and not just Matthew, of course, because we understand he's telling us what Jesus' focus is, and he's doing this because the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to do it, but Matthew's really focused on proving that Jesus is the Messiah King that has been foretold by God, promised by him, who would finally establish in this fallen, sinful world the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, God's righteous rule and reign on this earth. And when you think about that in that context, I think it's also worth pointing out how this passage demonstrates for us, and I'm going to say once again, the stark contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this earth. Now, Jesus has been spending his time through his entire ministry in Galilee teaching anyone who would and could listen to him what the kingdom of heaven is like, right? Remember those parables in 13? The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. He's been telling them what the Father is like. 
You have needs, but you know what? Your father already knows what you need before you ever ask for it, and he wants to give you what you need. He's also been telling them not only what the kingdom of heaven is like and what God is like, but he's been telling them what the citizens of the kingdom need to be like. Remember particularly chapters 5 through 7? The Beatitudes and all those things after, Jesus telling his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. He's taught them that they need to be righteous people, humble people, meek people. How different is that from the wicked, ungodly kings and kingdoms of this world, and particularly the one we just witnessed in the text today? Now I said... Again, and I say that because we saw this first pictured for us at Jesus' birth, didn't we? Jesus had been born, the wise men, as we call them, came from the east in order to worship the newborn king. And what does Herod Antipas' father do? He slaughters an untold number of little boys in Bethlehem to ensure that his own kingdom is protected. And that this kingdom of God and this king never make it to fruition. And here his son Antipas in his own wicked, proud, and arrogant folly is tricked into wickedly and unjustly taking the life of a righteous prophet of God. The greatest in the Old Testament. Don't forget that Jesus had just talked in that Nazareth passage about the honor that is due to a true prophet of God. And he declared himself to be a true prophet. A prophet isn't without honor except in his own hometown and among his own household, Jesus said. He was being denied that. And here Herodias attempts, at least, to dishonor this greatest of the Old Testament prophets of God by having him beheaded, essentially in front of everyone, at this birthday party for faithfully commanding their obedience to God's word. Little did she note, though, that by doing this, she was actually placing on John the Baptist one of the greatest honors that was possible for a man in this life to achieve, or in the next. Because at the instant of his martyrdom, John took his place as one of those souls that the Apostle John saw in the book of Revelation. You remember in chapter 6, verse 9, I think it is, when the fifth seal is opened and John sees under the altar in heaven the souls of those who had been martyred, who had given up their lives for the word of God and their witness to it. And each of those are given a white robe. Vindication from God. Be patient. Wait until the last of your brothers receives the same treatment, essentially. However, I would suggest to you that John's faithfulness extends way beyond simply speaking God's word faithfully and then standing by it faithfully, even if it meant his life. Again, I don't think John the Baptist anticipated it was going to cost him his life. I think he was partly caught up in the idea that the Messiah was going to be the great king who would come and drive out the the infidels and establish a real kingdom in some sense at least. I think that headsman's axe came as a great surprise to him in that prison. And yet I would suggest his faithfulness goes beyond that because his role was sent into this world to be what? the forerunner of the Christ. 
right? The one who would prepare the way for him. The one who would declare who he was and present him to the people. And he does that, I would argue, in a remarkable way, in a typical way in this passage. Understanding when I say typical, I don't mean normal or usual. I mean serving as a type of Christ. Someone that, something, someone that would point to him in this text. As we read through this, have you ever considered the similarities between John's end and what will be the end of Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about any of this? Because of their faithful testimony to everyone, common people and rulers alike, they are declaring to everyone, you're all sinners and you need to repent before God. The kingdom of heaven is here. And because of their faithful testimony, especially against wicked rulers, in John's case, it was against Herod Antipas and his illegitimate wife Herodias. In Jesus' case, it's against the religious leaders and rulers of the day, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Because of their faithful testimony against those people, they're both arrested. It's interesting, Antipas was drawn to John, wanted to hear him, wanted to see him. We're going to find as we move along that Herod is also drawn to hear and see Jesus further in the accounts. Not only are they both arrested, but the fact is that those in power want both of them dead. But those in power are also afraid to kill either one of them. Why? Because the crowds believe that they are both prophets of God. I think that's important to note. Both of them are understood to be prophets of God. But powerful people want both of them dead, and so powerful people behind the scenes scheme to find a way to get someone else in power to kill them. Herodias tricks Antipas, and the Jewish leaders put Herod in a spot where he has to put him to death. And both of them are unjustly executed by worldly rulers, despite the fact that they had done nothing wrong at all. Both declared to be righteous men. And once both of them are dead, their faithful disciples risk their own safety and their own lives even in order to come and request their bodies so that they give them a proper burial. A lot of similarities between the two. Why is that? Because John was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And it wasn't just to declare who he was. I think there's a sense in which John also prepares the way by showing the path that the Messiah is going to follow. I'll prepare the way he'll be following behind. Yes, you see, for those of us like us who know the whole story that Matthew is telling, we know sort of the end. We can see here that Matthew isn't just telling us about the sad and tragic story of how John the Baptist died. Important as that is. He is furthering his account of how people, despite the coming of the kingdom of heaven among them, the people at large are still rejecting, as they always have, the prophets, the messengers of God. And even not just rejecting them, but putting them to death. Which is what God has accused his people of from the beginning. 
He is, in a way, foretelling the very rejection that Jesus is facing, that Matthew's been focused on, and he is focusing on it as what Jesus will continue to face, despite the fact that he is Emmanuel, God with us. So, no, in a sense here, Herod Antipas, John the Baptist has not been raised from the dead. Yet. He is going to be, though. He is going to be raised from the dead. And he's going to be raised from the dead because one day his own master, Jesus Christ, despite being unjustly put to death, is going to be raised from the dead by his heavenly Father to vindicate him. Even though you want to dishonor him, it's going to honor him above everything, showing that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Savior, the Messiah, who has given his life for his people And he is going to be given the name that is above every name so that at his name, every knee on earth is going to bow before him and confess that he truly is who he said he is, whether they want to or not. They may do it through gritted teeth, but they will confess who he is. They will acknowledge him as that. And so, what ultimate kind of lesson can we draw from this? We might consider the fact that at that great and terrible day of the Lord that the prophets were so focused on, that day when God himself would come in judgment, and as Daniel and others prophesied that all the dead are going to be raised to sit before the judgment bar of God, we could consider that the fear that Herod Antipas felt here when he thought John the Baptist had been raised from the dead will be nothing, nothing compared to the terror that he and all of those like him who in their folly rejected God's word, God's son, all the prophets who brought the gospel to them in this life. It's also good, though, to remember that all those who, like John, faithfully followed Jesus Christ are going to be raised. And it's not going to be to run around doing mighty works to scare people like Herod Antipas. They're going to be raised and they're going to be rewarded eternally for their faithfulness with blessing and honor by their Savior. So a question you might think about as you leave here today and consider through the week as you think about this text, which of those resurrections do you want to be part of? Do you want to be part of Herod's resurrection and the terror that will be involved in that? Or do you want to be part of the resurrection of the godly and righteous who will be brought into blessing with their Savior for all of eternity? Let's pray. Father, we come to you and are so thankful for the incredible, amazing grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for the fact that undeserving as we are, as we were and as we continue to be, Your love reaches down in both mercy and justice, in pouring out justice on your own son so that you could show mercy to us in him. So we come to you thankful for this example of John the Baptist. We pray that you would soak these things into our hearts and minds, help us to remember that life here isn't about finding a safe and secure place, Life here is about being faithful to you. We pray that you would help us 
to be the people whose hearts have been transformed by your spirit and by your word to faithfully follow you in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And now we come to our time to participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Remember, this is a, a means of grace. This is a Christ-instituted or ordained means by which he literally funnels and channels his grace to his people. It is the word. You've heard the word preached. But this is the word presented to you in another form, in a way that appeals to your senses. Because God knows that he created us to be people who learn in different ways, and the more ways that learning is reinforced, the better we get it. And so in his grace, he gives us the gospel in this form as well. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not mine. It's not this church's. It's not our denomination's. It is his table. He is the host. He is the meal. He invites those who have professed faith in him and have confirmed that profession of faith by being examined, being baptized, becoming members of a Bible-believing church to come and participate in this meal. He is not inviting perfected people to come and celebrate their perfection. He's inviting people who, through his word, have become humble and meek and repentant to come and to be fed and nourished and strengthened by grace through faith in him. There is a warning attached to this. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 29 that whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So if you are a believer, struggling with sin and yet trusting in Christ to overcome it, this is where you come to be strengthened in that. If you're not one of those believers, don't take part in the sacrament, but don't ignore it. Pray that the Holy Spirit would use even these elements and this institution to speak to your heart and to draw you into faith with Christ so that you too may feed on him as well. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and how thankful we are that you are a God who is abundant in mercy and grace. That you are a God who goes out of your way to pour grace into our lives. We thank you for this sacrament and we pray that you would be pleased to take these common elements of bread and the fruit of the vine and that you would set them apart for your holy purposes in our hearts and lives for the establishment of your kingdom. We pray that you would work in us through the grace in this sacrament to strengthen us to be more faithful followers of Christ in the days ahead. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.